All right, well, as you find your seat this morning, if you will, take your Bibles and join me in John chapter 1. John chapter 1. I want to welcome you to uh, Kids Camp 2014, and as you can see, we are ready for a big week ahead. Uh, Kids Camp, I think, across the board is one of the craziest uh, and most just awesome weeks of the year, and I love how people come out for one and two weeks ahead of time uh, to do things like put together this set um, prep lessons, wash lanyards for kids because they chewed on them last year, just all kinds of good things uh, to get ready for kids camp. There's so much that happens behind the scenes um, to, to get ready for a week like this. And so we are excited about what God is going to do in this place, in the lives of kids, and then surprise in the lives of some adults who think that they're coming to help the kids and God's going to just blow their world up this week with the gospel. And so we're excited about that. Um, our Bible point for tonight is God is with us so we can trust him. God is with us so we can trust him. Every night the kids are going to go home with one big idea. And so tonight it's God is with us so that we can trust him. And so I chose one of my favorite texts from the New Testament, John chapter 1. And we're going to look just uh, for a few minutes at verse 14. It's only one verse, so how long can the sermon be, right? Uh, we'll see. I'm not sure. If you have one of these things in your pocket, pocketbook, uh, somewhere stashed away, let me see it. Just raise it up. Smartphones all over the place. Smartphones. And if you're like, I'm ashamed, just raise your dumb phone too. It's okay. All right. Now, I, now we got to have more smartphones than that. Come on, people. Let's do that one more time. Let me see it. Let me see it. Smartphones all over the place. All right. Now, keep in there. Keep in there. How many of you are playing games on them right now? Okay. All right. I'm just kidding. All right. You can put those away. Um, smartphones are game changers. They have changed the way that we do everything, really, if you think about it. Um, you can do all kinds of things on your smartphone. You can sit here this morning while I'm preaching, and you can pay your bills on your phone right there, uh, if you know the password to get in here on the Internet. You can order a pizza on your phone and have it delivered to your door by the time you leave this place this morning. You can keep up with the latest news headlines uh, some, some of you guys in here in a month or two when Jerry's preaching, you might be drafting your fantasy football team right here on your phone in church. And you can do that. I mean, we don't want you to, but you can because of what, how uh, smartphones have changed the game and how they've changed communication. You can read a book. You can read a book. You can even tune your guitar if you have the right app that will sit there beside your guitar and you can tune your guitar because these things have changed the game. That's the title of my sermon this morning is Game Changer. And we're going to look at, not a smartphone, but we're going to look at the gospel from, uh, from John's perspective in John chapter 1 and how Jesus came, the word became flesh, and changed the game, changed everything, changed the way we live. Um, let's go ahead and stand and we'll read together. Uh, we'll read John chapter 1 and I'll kind of skip through uh, verses 1 through 14. Beginning in verse 1 just to give us some background. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. In Him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. Verse 9, the true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. 
he came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. In verse 14, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory, glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. You can have a seat. Commentators suggest that John chapter 1 and verse 14 is a game changer on a whole nother level. Some even say that it's maybe the most significant verse in all of Scripture and probably the New Testament because of what it means for our relationship to God, for what it means for our hope of eternal life, what it means for how you live out this moment right now, this morning. And so when we look at John chapter 1 and verse 14, we're going to see basically two big ideas. Two big ideas. The first one is this, that God became a man. God became a man. And second, John says, we, being the apostles, his closest uh, friends and disciples around him, we beheld his glory. Now, beheld is not a word that we use a whole lot. You didn't wake up this morning and think, I'll use that word 10 or 11 times a day. You just don't do it. It's kind of an old word. But basically what beheld means is we saw, we experienced, we observed. And we're going to talk about that a little bit later this morning. But what John wants you to do as the reader of this gospel, the the, the hearer of this sermon even, is to take hold of the weight of this passage. To take hold of the weight of this verse for what it means for God to become one of you and one of me. For a lot of us, I think what has happened is this. John 1 and verse 14 And the idea that God became flesh becomes like the old car key uh, on your your key ring. And you use it every day and you shove it in and out of that lock and you bang it around and you throw it down. And it's with you all the time. And what happens to the edge of the car key? The edge loses what? It loses its edge, doesn't it? It loses the ability to unlock that car door and it kind of becomes dull and it kind of just becomes a little worn out. And that's what happens for a lot of us because maybe you grew up in Sunday school and you heard, yeah, the word became flesh. Okay, cool. Well, this morning, my hope and prayer is that the Holy Spirit would open your eyes and open your hearts to see afresh, if you've heard this verse for 30 or 40 years, or maybe for the first time today, that God loved you so much that he became one of us to rescue us and save us because he loved us. That he became one of us. So let's talk about this word, word, for just a minute. Because John packs a whole lot into the first verse, even the first four words of his gospel. When he talks about this concept of the word, we all know that. Most of us probably know that to mean Jesus. And if you don't, that's what the word means, essentially, is Jesus. But what was packed in there? If you're a Jewish reader and you're hearing John chapter 1 right here, to the Jew, they think of uh, the, the phrase from the beginning of Genesis, in the beginning, God created. So when John says, in the beginning was the word, it sounds exactly like Genesis 1-1 because John is taking his Jewish readers on a trip all the way back to the beginning of time, the beginning of creation. He's touching on their Jewish understanding of how all of this came to be. So when he says, in the beginning was the word, they go, in the beginning. I've heard that before. That's at the very heart of what I believe as God being our creator. Also, the phrase, the word of the Lord, was a very Jewish idea because by his word, God accomplished all manner of things. God spoke creation into being. He introduced covenants with his people. 
God gave the commandments to Moses, what? By his word. He counseled struggling prophets by his word. And he revealed himself to Samuel, to Elijah, and to others. How? By his word. It's incredible to think that God spoke to man. God spoke to man. We don't know the tongue and the language that they speak in heaven, but God condescended to our point to be able to speak our language to us so we could understand him clearly as he revealed himself to us. So if you're a Jewish person this morning and you hear in the beginning was the word, you sit up straight and you pay attention and you think, I wonder what he's going to say next. But let's say half of you this morning are Greek. You're Greek in your philosophy. You're Greek in your descendants. You're Greek in everything. So you're, you're listening for what does he mean by this word because we have a belief about the word. The word for word in Greek is logos and logos basically means this. It's the Greeks understanding of how everything came to be. Logos basically means the created order. Like when the Greeks look around in the universe and they see the wind blowing through the trees and they see the sun in the same place every day at the same time, they understood that there was something or someone out there or maybe a bunch of someones who created some of this stuff and, and kept it uh, in place. They sustained it. But for the Greek, the problem is the Logos was an impersonal, abstract force. Uh, it was kind of like if, any Star Wars fans out here? Anybody? All right, when I just said impersonal abstract force, all of you were like, like having a lightsaber battle in your mind as a five-year-old, right? And you're going back to the 80s, and you're thinking about, uh, anyway, all right, we won't go there. All right, so, so the, the, the thing about the, the Logos was it was beyond human beings' ability to relate to. Like, you couldn't really connect with this force. It was just there. Okay, And so what John is doing in John chapter 1 is he is connecting both ideas of the Jewish understanding of creation and the Greek understanding of this logos. And here's what he's doing. He's taking the Jewish guy's hand, he's taking the Greek guy's hand, and he's putting them both in the hand of the second person of the Trinity, Jesus Christ. It's brilliant what the, what the Gospel of John, what the author does in one little verse in the beginning was this word. And both audiences go, he's talking about what I believe. And he's telling me now that it's here in this guy, this person, Jesus. And John goes on to defend and affirm that throughout the Gospel. In John, verse, uh, John chapter 1, verse 14, John says the word became flesh. Now, we just accept that because we've heard it so much, but if you were in the church in John's day, this is where it got kind of dicey. This is where people started having conflicts and disagreements, and heresies were just flying all over the place, all right? Um, so all the heresies were basically saying this, that either Jesus was God or he was man, um, that he couldn't be God and man at the same time. They couldn't be combined. You couldn't combine the nature of God and the nature of man because it would defile God or it would uh, elevate man to a point that man shouldn't be elevated to. And what John is saying is precisely that, that when, when Jesus came to earth, God became flesh. And the word became has a fascinating meaning. What it means is this, when God came to earth in Jesus and Jesus became flesh, he didn't stop being God. It's not like all of a sudden he's man and now he has to stop being God. In fact, one of the heresies that was flying around in the church and outside the church at this point said this. It said that uh, at Jesus' baptism and at Jesus' crucifixion, the Holy Spirit came on him and filled him and he was God. And people were listening to this stuff. They were, they were listening to stuff, and it was like a virus. It was infecting the church. And so John is railing against this. He says, no, these two distinct natures, God and man, joined together in this person, and they're inseparable now. 
they're inseparable. You can't pull them apart because they are together. I think of it like this. When uh, my first child, Ryan, was born, when Ryan was born, I was Josh uh, on September the 9th before I had a child. On September the 10th, when I had my first child, I didn't stop being Josh. I'm Josh, and I'm also a dad. And now the two things are inseparable. You can't pull Josh and dad apart. I'm forever a dad, and I'm forever Josh. That's how I am. Those two natures, you might say two roles, but those two natures have come together. Or maybe a, a more fun example, if you're a Jack Frost fan, do we anybody have any ice cream fans out here? All the kids are like, me, they beat y'all adults to the punch. If you go to Jack Frost and you're like, uh, I'm not feeling a, a malt milkshake today. I'm not feeling, uh, I'm not feeling, you know, chocolate chip or what I get, chocolate, chocolate chip, chocolate dip in a cup because they have more dip in the bottom of the cup. And you're like, I'm not feeling that today. I think I'm. <laughs> I saw some crazy looks. Uh, I, I'm, that's for real. Um, if you're like, man, I think I want uh, some soft ice cream. I want chocolate and vanilla swirl. They take the cup, the cup and they go over to the pump and they pull the handle down and what happens? The stuff starts to swirl out, right? And it lands in the cup. Now, did the chocolate, when they combine it with the vanilla in the pump, did it stop being chocolate? No, it's still chocolate. Like if you eat just that part of the chocolate over here on this side, it's still chocolate. All right? But if you lean over here and eat the vanilla, it's still vanilla. But guess what? You can't separate them. Try as hard as you want to. They're inseparable because they are together. Now, I know the analogy falls short, but the, the point is for us to understand, uh, to make it palatable, uh, that we can see that, th that God and man came together in an inseparable way, unique to every other man that ever walked this earth. That's what John is trying to say to us right here in verse 14. If you look at the New Testament, like you might ask, well, the, like, is that the only place that that's said throughout Scripture? No, Paul echoes the Apostle John in several places. Romans chapter 8 and verse 3. Paul says this, he sent his own son in the likeness of sinful what? Flesh and for sin and condemn sin in the flesh. So Paul says the father sent the son in the flesh. Now, not in the sinful flesh, not in that sense, but in the sense that he sent Jesus into the misery and the, the, the weakness of our world. And Jesus embraced that. Paul says that there. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 through 7, this is a summary, but he basically says we should look to the interests, the needs of others, just like Jesus who was in his very nature God, in his very nature God, but he didn't grasp for the privileges that belong to God alone. Instead, he chose the form of a servant, and in human what? Flesh and weakness, he died on the cross in obedience to the Father. So there again, Paul says, he was in the flesh. Paul is affirming the same thing. Colossians 1, verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. What's an image? It's a picture. What's invisible? It means you can't see it. Right? Last night I went to tuck Scott in and laid him down. And, uh, and for 30 or 40 minutes, we just heard it sound like he was having a WWE wrestling match on his bed by himself. And I don't know what he was doing. But I go in there, and he's got the sheets pulled up over his head. Well, the sheets are camouflaged, and he thinks camouflage disguises him, you know? So he thinks he's invisible. Well, I see two little wiry legs kicking out from under the sheets, you know, and I know he's, he's in there, you know, but I play his little game. Where are you, Scott? Kind of thing, you know? But Jesus was the picture of the invisible God, the picture of the God we can't see. And so the idea here is that when Jesus took on flesh, God came down to us and he became one of us. We might say it this way. The creator became part of the creation. The painter painted the beautiful, perfect painting, laid down the brush and then stepped into the painting and walked around so that we could see him doing it. 
joy and peace embraced suffering and weakness. The infinite became finite. This is the difference between Christianity and every other faith in the world. Because every other religion out there will say, oh, I know there's a higher power. I know there's a God. I know there's something who created all this, and I'm supposed to believe in him or at least just know he's out there. But see, they don't know how to get to him. They're not quite sure who he is, and so they spend their lives tirelessly striving. And Maybe that's you this morning. Maybe I'm not talking about somebody else. Maybe I'm talking about you. And you're spending your life tirelessly striving to get to this God that you don't really know. Well, that's why God sent Jesus in the flesh. That's why the word became flesh, so that we could read the copy of God's word and we could picture in our minds as we read what John saw and beheld with his own eyes. The good news for them, the good news for you, the good news for me this morning is this. We don't have to get to God because he came down to us. That's the good news of the gospel. That sets you free when the chains of, of striving and effort are trying to, try, trying to hold you back. And you're like, man, I just cannot get it right. You don't have to. Jesus got it right when he came down in the flesh to us. And so you don't have to get it right except for you just trust in Jesus. He got it right for you. And he puts his right code of righteousness on you. And now guess what? You're acceptable to God the Father. That's the gospel. That's what John's trying to say. One of my favorite commentators, old guy, really hard to read. Takes me two weeks to figure out what he's saying in one sentence. Matthew Henry said this, we should wonder at this. We should wonder at this, that the eternal word should be made flesh when flesh was come into such an ill name. When flesh was come into such an ill name by how Adam and Eve plunged our race into rebellion and sin, that the Father would condescend to this point that Jesus would take on the flesh of weakness and misery that we wear around every day, that we're longing to be rid of. And he would come down into our world and say, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. The Word became flesh, John says, and dwelt among us. The picture to dwell here is to tabernacle or to set up a tent. Now, how many of you like to go camping? Just curious. All right, a lot of you, okay? All right, camping's kind of new to me. I'm not really like a camper, and I've had two experiences. I've told the kids about this a bunch. I've had two experiences in the last couple of years where I went camping, and neither of them turned out well. That's another day, another sermon. Uh, but basically, what John wants us to understand is that for a time, Jesus set up his tent here on this earth, and he dwelt among us. Now, if you're a Jew, all of a sudden, all this imagery of the tabernacle, the tent, the big, huge tent, is coming back to you. If you track the idea through Scripture, you see it runs from the beginning to the end. It runs from Genesis to Revelation. In the garden, God walked with his people, and he even pursued them after they rebelled and sinned against him. His presence dwelt in the Old Testament tabernacle, and Moses had to go in on behalf of the people there. When they finally got settled after wandering around for all those years and they finally got this temple, God's presence dwelt in that temple and he made a way for people through the sacrificial system to come and be near to him, but still somebody had to go on their behalf. That's the Old Testament, basically. God is wanting to be with his people. And then the New Testament comes and what happens? We celebrate this at Christmas. We should celebrate it every year, every day, rather. Jesus comes to earth to show us who God is in the flesh. And after he died, resurrected, and ascended back to heaven, he sent his spirit so that when you receive Jesus Christ as your Savior, his spirit lives forever within you, and God is with you all the time. And then what did Jesus say? I'm coming back to get you. 
I'm coming back to get you, and I'm taking you home with me so that forever you can dwell in my presence. I will be your God. You will be my people. I'll wipe away all the junk and the sadness and the tears and the grief, and you get to be with me. Do you understand the only reason that you and I get to be with God is because he wanted to be with us? Because he pursued us? If God had just said, you know what, I'm kind of tired of them, like they keep failing the test, I'm tired of grading the papers and seeing the D's and the F's and the P's and the Z's, you know what, I'm sick of it, I'm done with them, we wouldn't be here this morning, you would have no hope. People wouldn't have stayed till 1.30 in the morning to set up a, a kids camp set like this so we could make a fun week for these kids to teach them the gospel. We have no hope if God did not come after us. See, the truth is, and John's saying this, God doesn't need to be with us, but he's gone to crazy lengths because he wants to be with us. My question for you this morning is, does it not stir something deep inside of you when you meditate, reflect, and consider the fact that God loves you and wants to be with you? The high king of heaven left the throne room, sent his son down, left the throne room, on the greatest mission trip the world has ever known to save you and win you back and make you his own. God became one of us to be with us, to rescue us because he loved us. I mean, what do you do with that? What do you do with that? You just glory in it. You abide in it. You just hang out in it. I mean, you just pour a big old bottle of like God's glory and you just lay down in that little uh, plate like you're a big old piece of steak and you just roll around in it. You just marinate in it. You soak it up and you're like, man, God wants to be with me. Are you kidding? Did you see my last 24 hours? I don't deserve my spouse to be with me, but God wants to be with me. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. And John says, we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. How many of you are science nerds? Little, just little, show your hands. Science nerds, all right, a few of you. I wasn't a science nerd, but when they put that microscope in front of me in eighth grade science class, I went wild, man. I was turning that dial. I was looking at things. I was putting stuff like, you know, like from in my book, like pieces of gum under there and stuff you're not supposed to do. But they give you these slides, and they want you to examine them under a microscope, right? And you're supposed to be doing an activity, and you and your buddy are over here, you know, goofing around. You're spinning that dial thing, and you're checking out what's in there. You're looking and everything, and all of a sudden you see it, that thing crawling around on the slide, you know? It's nasty. And what are you doing? You're observing. You're carefully and patiently inspecting, if you were doing what you were supposed to be doing in class, you're carefully inspecting this slide for what's supposed to be on there. That's the picture of what John's saying. He says, all of us guys, all of us apostles, especially Peter and James and myself, we, we basically put Jesus' life under the microscope and we observed and inspected the closest details of his life and teaching. We turned the dial every day. We checked out the slide. We listened to the teaching. They saw the blind guy that came up and was desperate for healing. Jesus put mud in his eyes and they're probably like looking in the microscope thinking, what's he doing? I don't know. What's wrong with this guy? They put some mud on his eyes and heals him. They saw him take the little boy's lunchbox, open it up, take the bread, take the fish, break it, and it just kept breaking and falling all over the place. And they filled it up in baskets and they fed thousands of people. They witnessed it with their eyes. 
They saw Jesus stand in a boat in the edge of the water and project his voice out over a mountainside and hold hundreds or maybe thousands of people captive with his authoritative word that he taught. And then what I read last night to my boys in the Gospel of Mark, Jesus took him up on a mountain, Peter, James, and John, and he was transfigured before them in such a way that they thought, my goodness, I don't even know what to do. And Peter's like, well, let's just build some shelters. And everybody's like, shut up. Just enjoy it. Just take it in. And they saw him punished and they saw him murdered for the sins of the world that he spoke into creation. And then when he was resurrected, they saw the glorious body that God gave him as he resurrected from the grave. They saw it. They were eyewitnesses to the glory, the presence, and the majesty of God in this man, Jesus Christ. Imagine if you were one of them. Put yourself in that story. You're a disciple. You're seeing all these things. Imagine the mark that it would leave on you. I mean, why else would you confidently march toward your death or maybe to exile and you're writing, you're baptizing, you're defying authorities, you're taking beatings, you're preaching and talking about the kingdom of God. You would not do these things unless you were 100% convinced that Jesus was who he claimed to be. I mean, think about the claims he made. I'm the way, I'm the truth, I'm the life, I'm the bread of life, I'm the bread that came down from heaven, I'm the eternal living water you drink from me, you'll never be thirsty again. Those claims are outlandish. If you made those to somebody in here this morning, you know what, you're probably going to be ushered out and we'll make a phone call for you and send you off somewhere. It's crazy. See, we're so used to it. We hear him say these things and we're just like, yeah, you're, you're the way and truth and life, good. Okay, what's for dinner? John says, no, put him under the microscope. Observe him, turn the dial, look at his life. Pay attention. John says, we saw his glory. Peter echoes the same thing in 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm giving you a summary. He basically says, we didn't make this stuff up. We didn't follow cleverly invented tales about this guy, Jesus. We weren't just spinning a yarn. We were eyewitnesses of his majesty. John basically says we beheld Jesus. We were eyewitnesses to the life change and the people that he spoke with. We saw the glory dust trail off the lady when she was healed and the doctors couldn't touch her. And here's the good news for us today. The good news for us today is this. There's no priest, there's no special person of any kind of spiritual rank that has to go for you into the presence of God. Nobody goes to the Holy of Holies anymore on behalf of us to go behold the glory of God and be in his presence. We, you and I, if we know Jesus Christ as our Savior, we have the tremendous privilege of beholding his glory in his word as he's revealed daily, freely, intimately, daily, Freely, intimately. I'm going to ask a kind of tough question here this week. You brought your Bible with you this morning, I'm assuming. How many times did you pick it up this week and read it? How many times did you pick it up and read it this week? We have the opportunity. The Word has been preserved for 2,000 years, scrupulously, perfectly, amazingly. And we have the opportunity to read it and behold the glory of God daily, freely, and intimately. And how often do we neglect it and push it to the side and it sits on the coffee table so when the guests come in, they see it. Come on. I'm no different than you. There's weeks that go by and I think, man, I did not pick up my copy of God's word. I don't understand the privilege that I have to behold the glory of the Lord. 
We take it too lightly. The glory he perfectly displayed was full of grace and full of truth. You might recall the story in the New Testament from John chapter 8 of the woman caught in the act of adultery. Caught in the act of adultery. And the religious authorities and the judgmental, ready-to-pronounce judgment guys uh, come and they grab this woman. They drag her into a public place right in front of Jesus and they throw her over there and she's made to stand there, possibly naked, ashamed, humiliated. Everybody knows her sin. Jesus had an opportunity right then to either stone her or let her go scot-free. The whole thing was a setup. They just wanted to see what Jesus was going to do. See if we can get some kind of, some kind of uh, you know, jump on this guy, Jesus. If he stones her, then he's doing this. If he lets her go scot-free, then he's doing that. Either way, he can't win. We've got him. Jesus kneels down. He writes something in the dirt. We don't know what he was writing. He stands up. And he perfectly displays the grace and the truth of God in one sentence. He says, who's not sinned before? You guys can go ahead and throw your rocks. Everybody drops their rocks and they back away because they know, you know what? I should be standing there. I'm a sinner like her. Like the whole thing gets turned on these guys and Jesus punches them in the mouth. Then he looks at this woman, ashamed, humiliated, publicly exposed, and he says to her, he says, nobody's here to condemn you, neither do I. There's the goodness, the grace of God. And he says this, go and leave your life of sin behind. Grace and truth, like a perfect seesaw here, like not out of order, not out of balance, grace and truth perfectly intersected in this one man, Jesus. Scripture says in Jesus, God became a man and he perfectly reflected the glory of his father. The word became flesh dwelt among us. We saw his glory, glory as of the only Son, of the only begotten Son of the Father, full of grace and truth. A 2009 article in a Chicago paper told the story of a lady named Betty Tucker. She was a Christian cook. She worked the night shift at the Children's Hospital in Chicago. She had worked there for 43 years, 28 of those on the night shift. She saw weary frightened, alarmed parents come in who, who knew that their child was hanging on for dear life every single night. And on this one night, she served food to a mother whose three-year-old fell out of a second-story window that morning, to another mother whose 17-year-old was battling a rare form of leukemia, to a third mother whose 18-year-old had just endured seven hours of intense brain surgery. And every time Miss Betty would hear these stories, it just broke her heart. This was her ministry. One coworker said this about her. That's why she feeds every last one of them like they walked right into the too small kitchen of the south side bungalow where she lived. Another member of the hospital's housekeeping crew adds this about Miss Betty. You know, you just need someone to bring you life. And that's what she does in the middle of the night. She brings hope. She brings encouragement. She brings food. But she brings life. That's the heart of John 1 and verse 14. We desperately needed someone to bring us life in the dark night of our sin. We needed a game changer. And God became a man, took on the weakness of our flesh so that he could do it and show us perfectly the glory of God. 
So my question, I have two questions for you. My two questions as we leave this morning are this. First, have you ever received Jesus Christ as your perfect Savior in your place who died and took your sin so that you could be forgiven? Have you beheld his glory in that way? If you haven't, you need to this morning make that decision to become a Christian, to become a follower of Christ. Second question, if you've been walking with God for two years or five years or eight years or ten years, when you look back over the last six months or year of your life, have you beheld the glory of God in such a way that it's made a visual and obvious difference to those around you? Ask your spouse. Ask your kids if they're old enough to understand the concept. Ask a coworker you're, you're close friends with. Ask your accountability partner, do you see the glory of God reflected in my life in such a way that it's making a difference? Because I need to know if it's not. The word became flesh and lived for a time among us so we could perfectly see the glory of the Father. There's no limit to God's love that he would not go that distance to rescue you and redeem you and make you his own. Let's pray.